Do that, Luke 18, 1 through 8, and uh, let me look at, at, uh, let me get there myself as I'm up here talking. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, <coughs> I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Okay. So, coming out of chapter 17 that we looked at last week, that, that Pastor Chad, the message that Pastor Chad taught us last week, we see at the end of that passage this, 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 this great anticipation from the disciples as they're talking to Jesus um, about the second coming, okay? And, and, and they're trying to come to grips with, with, with just the very idea of his coming, with his coming in all his grandeur and his coming in an instant. They're trying, to, they're trying to wrestle with that and come to grips with that. And he's telling them to endure. He's telling them to be ready. And, and I got to tell you, as we, were, as we were listening to that, as Chad was teaching through that last week, in my anxious mind, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I found myself asking how do I wait? If we're talking about the second coming and there's this, what does it look like and all these things, and I, and I looked at it and I said, how, how do I wait for that? Because even though my heart is ready in my, and, and I can't wait to see it, the, the reality is that's the season we're in. We're in this season of waiting. And what I want to know as I look at that and have to face the truth of that is how do I wait well, and that's, that's exactly what Jesus is speaking to in today's text. He speaks to the issue of how we can wait well. <clears throat> now, as we prepare to get into this text and its, and its emphasis on prayer, it's probably a good time to talk about our own emphasis on prayer, which puts a lot more emphasis on that announcement that I made earlier, didn't it? Or maybe better yet, it'd be better to phrase it as our desired emphasis on prayer here within our church as the Venue Church. You know, back at the end of last year, Pastor Chad asked, asked all the elders to, to think about and to pray about some issues in our congregation, uh, asking the Spirit to kind of lay on us some things that, that might be looming, some things that we could look at um, within our church, maybe some areas that we might need to be strengthened in or areas that we need to be encouraged in. And this is one of those things that surfaced, is this issue of prayer. And, you know, Luke thought it was a pretty big issue too because he talks about prayer 
more than any other gospel writer. In, in, in this gospel and in the book of Acts that he wrote, he talks about prayer more than any other gospel writer. So let me tell you something. Even, even if we hadn't identified and acknowledged prayer as, as, as this area in which we need to be strengthened and that we need to grow as a church, the testimony of Scripture would resound loudly about the urgency and the importance of this particular issue and about it being absolutely essential to the accomplishment of Christ's mission in this world, which is to make disciples, to plant churches, to infiltrate people groups that that sometimes others don't want to infiltrate. That makes this an all-important subject. Because, 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 Because this, because Scripture reminds us of the reality that we can't do that in a way that honors Christ, and we can't do that in a way that's effective by kingdom standards if we don't pray. If prayer is not right there, central to all of our efforts, to everything that we do, and if it's not strengthening us to wait well. But how does, how does prayer do that? How does prayer help us do that? Well, well let me tell you, and, 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 and I'm going to strive uh, to make it really clear because Jesus makes it really clear in this, in this text that we're looking at today. In fact, this is one of the few parables where, where Jesus interprets for us lest we miss the point. And, and, and not only that, in this particular parable, he tells us at the very beginning what the parable is even going to be about. That's how much he doesn't want us to miss it. Luke 18.1, look at it. Luke 18.1 tells us the point of the parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus' answer to the question that I had of, of, of how to wait well is this. Pray, 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 and do not grow weary of praying as you wait for Christ's return. But why? Well, let's, let's, let's look at the context, okay? Let's, we, this, this is our text, 18, 1 through 8 is our text, but let's look at the context around it. Because a lot of times we forget about context and we jump into a passage of Scripture not really thinking about what was coming before it or after it. And it's real easy to take Scripture out of context when we just look at one small, one small piece of it and, and we don't look at what comes around it. And, and, and as I already mentioned, this, this parable was given in the context of a discussion about the second coming of Christ. Now, how do I know this? How do I know that, that, that this in 18 relates to that in 17? We know when the Bible was written, it wasn't written in chapters and verses and and all those things. That's put in there so we can find our way around it. Um, but, but there's even another pretty good clue about it. And, and if you look at, at 18.1, if you look at how that starts, you see verse, verse 1 starts with the word and. And. So that, that right there is, is a pretty, pretty good indicator that the topic we're about to get into is related to the one before it. Okay, but not just that, the last verse of our text, so jump, jump to the end of our text in Luke 18, 8, it clearly refers to the second coming of Christ. And when he says, I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Now, I, I, think, I think this ending is, 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 is a pretty clear indication that we should read it as a conclusion to or in conjunction with the last paragraphs of chapter 17, which have had to do with the end of the age and the coming of the Son of Man. So let's, let's look back there. Jump back a little bit. You probably don't even have to turn the page if you look back at the end of chapter 17. We're going to start with verse 20. And we see the Pharisees asking Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. Now, what they meant was, when they're asking Jesus this, they're saying, when will Messiah come and overthrow our enemies and establish the throne of David and bring peace and righteousness to our world? That's, that's really what they meant, okay? And, and Jesus' answer was, was baffling to them because it was baffling to people who did not acknowledge him to be that Messiah, to be the Messiah, So he said, in effect, if your only way of recognizing the kingdom of God is by miraculous signs, then you're going to miss it. Because the kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. And his person came the kingdom. And those who believe in him and therefore are in him are members of that kingdom. The people of God, in the place of God, under the rule of God. That kingdom was there, and and it was in the midst of them already. Okay, so then you look look in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 17. He warns against really the opposite mistake, okay? If the first coming was quiet and hidden, in these verses, uh, he warns against thinking that the second coming of the Son of Man could be anything but catastrophic. It will not be quiet or hidden. If someone says, and he says, if someone says, look here, or or they say, look there, then you know they're wrong. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. We will know. You will know. Everyone will know. It will not be hidden or quiet. It's not going to be something that one person sees and then gets to show another. It's going to be obvious to all from horizon to horizon like a streak of lightning. So why would, why would we, if it's that obvious, why would we, and we have this promise and we know it's coming, why would we as the people who already name the name of Christ, people who are, who are, who are in that kingdom that he says he's, he's here in our midst, Why would we, in anticipating that event, be at a place where we might be in danger of losing heart? Why would Jesus come and speak those words? Why would he turn to his disciples and speak those words that he did in in, in verse 1 of chapter 18? Well, let's look. And and, and if you look at that and you look at verse 1, part of the reason is, is in that term, lose heart. Okay, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting word because, yes, it means to, to grow weary. It means to give in the things that we, that we hear and probably think of when we hear that word, lose, lose heart. But it also means to lose courage. To lose heart also means to lose courage, and it means to become a coward. And that ought to be pretty alarming to us that he brings that up because there's another place in Scripture uh, where, where he brings that up. And it's, it's in Revelation 21. Uh, if you want to turn over there, Re- Revelation 21, uh, verses is, is 7 and 8. And, and in those verses, it's talking about um, who's going to make it and who's going to not. 
okay? And he he says it this way. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, we can look at that list, and certainly there are some things in that list that we would expect, right? I mean, I mean you look at that, and, and some of those things make, make perfect sense. Look at the terminology about the detestable and the murderers and the sexually immoral. You know, we, we, we get those. Those are, those are easy. But there are also some terms in there that, that probably cause us a little bit more concern. Words like cowardly and faithless and even liars. Now, we're told that the closer we get, the more the heat will be turned up on Christianity in this world. We know that. He, he tells us that. And, 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 and the truth of that should not, should not surprise us. Um, we're also told that a lot of people that come to this place, okay, and places like this that meet in congregations and churches all over the world, are going to give in, and they're going to go the cowardly way. They're going to lose heart, and their lives are going to be proven to be lives of a lie. But, but, but they said the words, right? A lot of them probably did, and, and they, they prayed the prayer, and, and they joined the church, And maybe they even did some good stuff. They worked hard. Maybe so. But when their lives were put under the heat, when they were tested by the fire, they were shown to be cowards. And this is is the kind of terminology. That's why this needs to catch our attention. That's the kind of terminology that Jesus is using here in in Luke 18.1. So to to turn to his disciples and say, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to teach you something so that you will pray persistently, always, so that doesn't happen to you. And he didn't pull any punches when we're talking to them. He didn't pull any punches on how difficult it was going to be. Go back to 17. Jump back over there a little bit and and, and look at in... in, uh, these descriptions of the difficulty that we see in verses 26 through 30 of chapter 17 as he describes what the days are going to be like leading up to the coming of the Son of Man, all right? He compares the coming of the Son of Man and, and talks about that and what's coming with, with first with the flood in Noah's day, all right? In verse 27, we see that. And then with the destruction of Sodom by fire and brimstone uh, in the days of Lot in, in verse 29, And he says that the days before Christ's coming will be like the days before those two catastrophes. Namely, full of busy, ordinary life. 
Verse 27 says, wait, wait, eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. And, and, and verse 28, they ate and they drank and they bought and they sold and they planted and they built. And verse 30 says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, we can expect that most of the world is going to be business as usual when the lightning of the Son of Man flashes from sky to sky. Now, I, I don't know about you when, you when you read that for the first time, maybe when Chad was teaching it or this week or even just seeing it maybe for the first time today. Um, but when I look at those descriptions that Jesus gives, uh, the question that comes up in my mind is, but wait, where's the stuff that I was expecting from those stories? Those are two really big stories, and I'm expecting some big stuff from those stories. You know, where, where's, where, in, in looking at the, the flood, looking at the time of Noah, where's that Genesis 6 stuff, you know, about, about the increasing corruption and on, on the earth and how God saw the wickedness of man and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. What about that? He doesn't mention any of that in Luke. They were just eating and drinking and working and marrying and with Lot, it's, it's, it's the same way, eating and drinking and buying and selling. And I'm looking at that and I'm saying, but, but there's something missing. Where's all that Genesis 18 and 19 stuff? That, 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 that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was so great and that their sin was so grave that God had to intercede. Or where the men of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded Lot's house. Okay, where God's two angels were. And they were demanding that they be brought out to them so that they could have their way with them both physically and sexually. Where's that in Luke? He doesn't mention any of that. He just mentions all this stuff that's like everyday life stuff. And therein is the point that Jesus is wanting us to understand. Do not miss this, church. Especially in this day, okay? Especially after what we've seen happening in this country over the past couple of weeks and, and folks in the church have been getting, getting distracted and getting all fired up about some things. And yes, judgment fell, but why? Because the threat to godliness is not just persecution. It's not just gross sins or the government redefining what the worldly definition of marriage is. It's everyday life. It's everyday life, church. When we pursue the good things of life, but we leave God and his mission out of them, that's what he's talking about. What led to this teaching in Luke 18 is the truth that we are in a battle that most of the world doesn't even know exists, and it is the battle of ordinariness. It's the battle of eating and sleeping and working and driving and raising our families and making our to-do list and having fun with our friends. The battle to keep God in life and not be desensitized to his eternal kingdom by the ever-present temporal 
That's what makes this so difficult. It's easy for us to look at that big stuff. That's why he exhorts us to keep our eyes on the things above and not on the things of this earth. That's why in Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says that he who endures to the end will be saved. He who endures to the end will be saved. And he tells us here in Luke 18 that the way to endure is to pray persistently. So I know that's, that's a lot of stuff trying to build up to a parable. Um, and, 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 but it was, uh, it was completely necessary for us to understand, to understand all that stuff if we're going to get the necessity of diligent, persistent prayer. Because it's right there that Jesus steps in and gives us his reason for this teaching. And it was so important that they get it. It's so important that we get it. That he says it at the outset. This is why I'm teaching you this. So that you will always pray. So that you will remain faithful. That you will not lose heart. The reality is, is, is there, there's going to be more and more among our ranks whose lives will rise to the surface and show that they're cowards and they throw in the towel and their faith falters before he returns. But equally as clear as his reason for this teaching is his promise of help. So he gives us this reason. He tells us why he's teaching us this and then he he, he gives us the promise of help. I don't know about you, but, but prayer, prayer's hard for me. It's one of the hardest things I'm up against sometimes. And Jesus knew that. He knew it'd be hard for us. He knew there'd be distractions. He knew the enemy would attack us. That's why he speaks God's promise into this situation. Let's look at it. If you jump to the other end of the parable, I promise you we're going to get to the parable itself in a minute. Um, it's just that, that, that if, if we can get all this stuff that bookends this parable, if we can get the stuff that comes before it and we can get the stuff that comes after it, the parable itself is easy. I mean, it's really easy when we get these things around it, okay? So look at, look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says the same thing twice, but he says it in two different ways. He asks a rhetorical question first, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Of which, of course, the answer is yes. Because then he turns around and he says it straight up in verse 8. He will give justice. So let's say it, let's say it this way, and then we're going to unpack it with this parable. God, at just the right time, will give both grace and and justice to his children who, get this now, who pray persistently. That's the key right there. Let me say it again. God, at just the right time, will give both grace and justice to his children who pray persistently. 
Now, Jesus uses two familiar characters to illustrate this, this point. Um, if we look at the parable, uh, we see that character number one is the judge. Then the text tells us that he is an unrighteous judge, that he is dishonest and corrupt. Even, even worse, is it says that he neither feared God nor respected man. So what we have here in this character, in this judge, is a description of a man who would have been, who would have been the most wicked and selfish person they could have imagined. Stop, think, think about that, because what this guy is and what he says is, is he's pretty much a good picture of someone who disregards the two greatest commandments in all the universe. Remember what Jesus said when, 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 they were, when he quoted from Deuteronomy 6? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the second is like unto it, Leviticus 19.18, when he quoted that, and he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy didn't do either one of them. And not only that, he boasted about it. So that's, that's who we have. That's character number one in this teaching, in this parable. Character number two is the widow. Now, we know that widows in both the Old Testament and the New were near and dear to God's heart because, because, they, because they were weak. They were helpless. They were poor with no husband. And when they were defrauded, they had no one to stand up for them. They had no one on their side. The only time a woman could show up in court was when she didn't have a man to plead her case. And that's what we see happening in this parable. That's what's happening here is this, as this widow is approaching this judge. And so now with this judge, character number one, this, this terrible guy, if this guy, if this judge whose responsibility it was to uphold the law was going to help anybody, it should have been this lady. And the story tells us that he did help her, right? He did, but not for the right reasons. In fact, he only helped her for one reason, and that was just to get her off his back. That's all he wanted because she was beating him down. The word in verse 5, it's kind of funny, the word in verse 5 was actually a boxing term that meant like to give a black eye. That's what he said she was doing to him. She metaphorically was beating him black and blue with her persistence. She was there all the time in his face crying out for justice. So he decides to help her just to get her off his back. Don't, don't miss this, this point in that, that, that this weak widow, because of her persistence, defeated this powerful and insensitive judge. Okay? That's not a main point, but it's an important point. Don't, I don't want you to miss that. So what do, what do we take away from that? Really, just, just sort of the logic of it. For one, that, that, that persistent pleading can make even the worst person do the right thing, okay? This, the face of that logic is real. And Jesus takes that, and he brings it into our lives, and he says what he says in verse 6 when he exhorts us in this way, you listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Okay, well, well what did he say? You see it there in verse 5? He says, I will give her justice. I will give her 
justice. So then, what does Jesus say about God and his children in that? Is he saying that God is like this unrighteous judge and that if we will just frantically beg and pester him um, and it, it, to answer our prayers that, that he finally will? Is that, is that the story, that, is that the point that Jesus is trying to make with us? <laughs> Absolutely not. In fact, that's, that's the biggest mistake we can make is to think that that is what he's trying to teach us, that, that, that we try to find some sort of one-to-one relationship between God and this judge. Because that's not what the comparison is here. This is a comparison from lesser to greater. It's really more of a parable of contrast. Because everything this judge is, God is not. And everything this judge is not, God is. He's not like the judge. God is good and God is gracious. And that's what Jesus wants us to see when he says and asks, Now, if a judge like that will do the right thing for someone whom he had no affection, don't you think God will do what is right by his children whom he has loved since the foundation of the world and his children that he has chosen for all eternity? And the resounding answer to all of that is, of course he will. Yes. Now, there's also some relationship between uh, Christ's disciples, us, and this this widow. And And it's a contrast, too, really, because unlike the nameless widow who had no one to stand for her, we are his chosen ones. Yes, it's sometimes to look at that comparison and sometimes see that we may be able to empathize with her because we feel weak and we feel run over and we feel wronged without help in this world, but that's not the point that he's wanting us to get. Look at verse 3 where it says she kept coming to the judge, okay? Then in verse 5, it says she kept bothering her, kept bothering him by her continual coming. And then Jesus comes around and he connects the dots in verse 7 when he describes his disciples as those who cry to him day and night. You see that? You see that God wants us to cry to him day and night and to never stop? He wants us to do that. He wants us to come, and he wants us to plead our case before him, and he wants us to never give up on that. And remember, God is not like this judge. It does not badger him. It does not bother him. And let me tell you something. He is way too tough for you to give him a black eye. So here we are, and we're we're longing for Christ to come, and we're longing for him to get here, but he hasn't shown up. We're holding on to this blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we live longingly, and we live waiting, and we live pleading for him to come and give us justice. And in verse 8, That's just what he says he'll do. 
God will give justice. He will give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night. Now this word justice is not about our salvation and being made right with God. The term here literally means to make to vindication. He will vindicate the plight of his children. That's his promise. So here we are, we're longing for him to come back and people all, us, all around us are rejecting the gospel every day. People are fleeing it. People are even mocking it. And the battle of our spirit, the battle against our flesh, and the lure of the world, we just get so tired and frustrated sometimes. But Jesus tells us that our God will vindicate us. And as if that weren't enough, he uses another rhetorical question in verse 7 when he says, will he delay long over them? This term, delay long, carries with it the idea of patience or long-suffering in relation to something that's far away. So the implied answer to the first question was, yes, he will give us justice. The applied answer to this rhetorical question is no, He will not delay in waiting to vindicate his elect. In fact, he says it in the next sentence when he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, the next sentence Jesus spoke refers to his coming, which makes it clear that speedily does not mean immediately. The idea here is swiftly. That is when God acts, it will be quick or swift. When we consider God's timing, we have to keep in mind Peter's wisdom regarding God's promise. Okay, if you look at 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. To the elect, it may seem like a long time until he answers. But afterwards, we'll realize that it was very short. It was very quick. Jesus' parable teaches the certainty of speedy action when it comes. But I want to tell you there's something else that's at, at play here as well. Jesus is also telling us that he gives help to his children right now. He gives help to his children right now. And church, that's what I want us to think about this morning. That's a truth that you need to hold on to. When you're thinking about the struggles that you face and the things that pull you away and the things that tempt you and, 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 and tempt you to give up, that tempt you to give in, to tempt you to shrink back, the ungodly temptations that hound you, whatever the issue in your life. It might just be the lifestyle you're living. Jesus wants you to know that persistent prayer is something that causes that gap between, between your situation and that faraway help to close.
Has God's help ever seemed too far away to you? It has to me at times. That's when it is good for us to remember all the promises that we have about that. What we see here in Luke. But you can also look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When does the temptation come? Right now. It's here and it's now. It's in our face. So when does that mean the way of escape comes? When does he promise when the way of escape comes? Right now. God's grace and his zeal is right on time to vindicate you. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just in the nick of time. That far away remote help is right on time in your situation. Every time. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. In 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I wish we had the time to go look at it, but in 2 Peter, Peter actually uses the Noah and Lot stories. He says, if God rescued Noah, and then he rescued Lot, then he brings it down to 2 Peter 2, 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. Nobody gets a pass on this. Do you understand that? Nobody gets to say his grace was not sufficient. Nobody gets to say his help was not there. Through persistent prayer, through persistent prayer, Jesus promises that he always closes the gap between his grace and our need. And he does it right on time so that we might not lose heart. So now, here we are at the end of this parable. And... uh, The big question is on the table now, isn't it? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What faith? This faith that is exemplified by this widow who would not give up but cried out continually. This faith, this persevering prayer faith in which believers say, yes, I will do that. Yes, I will be in on that. We could ask it this way. When Jesus gets back, will he find us individually and corporately praying persistently and living faithfully? That's the question you and I have to answer this morning. 
when Jesus gets back, will he find this kind of persevering faith among the faith family known as the Venue Church? Will he find us praying with this kind of perseverance? That's my prayer for you this morning. That you always pray and do not lose heart. Father God, we do 